Hi, I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your host, Kiara. And we're professional counselors, as well as lead program facilitators for Brookline Teen Outreach. And you're listening to our podcast, Lunchtime Chats with BTO. Hello, how's everybody doing? Hey. Hi. Hello. Today we have two incredible guests here to kick off our mini-series to talk with us about mental health questions asked by some of our curious teens here at Brookline Teen Outreach. We want to welcome Diana Fischer-Keller and Joan Merzer to our podcast. Welcome, everybody. Hey. Hello. Thanks thank so you. much. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us. We're so happy to be here. Of course. Um, just to do a quick introduction, right, Diana, um, who uh, a lot of you know already, um, she is a licensed professional counselor and our clinical director here um, at Brookline Teen Outreach Sister Organization, Compassionate Counseling. She is a returning guest. Uh, she spoke with me in one of um, our episodes in season one about adolescent uh, mental health, and she's here to uh, uh, talk with us more about that. Um, and Joan uh, is also uh, one of our licensed professional counselors here at Compassionate Counseling. And a fun fact is she was one of our former interns at Brookline Teen Outreach. So yes. again, thank you for coming here first, today. The first intern. The first, yeah, yeah that's true. That first, <laughs> yeah. first intern, yeah, since November 2015. Wow. Yeah, yeah, since the the moment we opened, so. <laughs> Before then, when we were in a, the old location, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Well, thanks so much for coming here to chat mm -hmm. with us today. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Diana, do you, um, can you remind some of our listeners or maybe some of our newer listeners about who you are and like just a little bit about your expertise here in the mental health field? Oh, sure. Yeah. I actually uh, feel very lucky to have a diverse background. Background. I started as a nurse for much of my career and uh, also a nursing home administrator. And at that point, realized how very much I certainly love helping people and that a lot of my time in those professions was spent handling the emotional side and helping people cope with things. And I was really drawn to that. So I got my master's in uh, counseling and uh, decided to start this business and now have all of you wonderful people as part of it and as a great team working together to really connect and take care of people and serve the community and feel like we can make a positive difference in changing some of the things that happen in the world that we all get distressed about but now we can actually you know make a difference and um, I felt strongly in my personal life that I had gone through a lot of things and sometimes felt I didn't have help and support, and I want to make sure no one felt that way. So that was the mission. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Joan, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that you're the OG, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I guess another little fun fact, I've, I've uh, grown up in Brookline, um, and I still live in Brookline, so it's really cool to work and serve in the community in which I live um, and where I grew up. Um, and for me, when I was uh, an adolescent high school, especially in high school, when I was really going through some stuff, um, the library was my safe place. Mm -hmm. um, and looking back, I don't know what I would have done without um, that space and the people who worked there at the time. Um, and I, that's one of the things that drew me to, to BTO's mission from the very inception um, was, was wanting to to provide that 
which I which I needed at that time when I was a teenager. Um, a little bit about my professional background. Um, I just actually decided I wanted to be a therapist when I was a senior in high school because um, I was like, I don't want like I want to help people go through what I was going through. Um, so but post uh, undergrad, I also worked in a nursing home. Um, I worked in uh, memory care, and Alzheimer's dementia care, um, end of life care. I did medical social work for a little bit. Um, also did one of my practicums with a hospice, uh, grief counseling, and I also worked for a number of years um, in drug and alcohol counseling, um, within that there's a lot of overlap with criminal justice and like forensic um, work as well. So I also have a diverse experience, which I'm grateful for, um, and right now I um, have a lot of people coming with a lot of different things, but I'd say one of my specialties is treating um, psychological trauma and um, specializing in some forms of therapy that really target um, helping people heal from trauma and reclaim their their lives. So that's great. Me in a yeah. nutshell. <laughs> We're excited to do have very diverse backgrounds and are drawn to some of the same work. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really excited to have you on today. Um, Thank you. Like we said, Pleasure. specifically, we're going to be talking a little bit more about some questions that our teens in the BTO space um, have asked us about mental health and some of, you know, questions that are a little bit more difficult to ask at home or at school. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even just some questions that they don't want to be asking the adults that are in the teen center space with all of their peers around them, right? Yeah. And so I think we took this opportunity to try to get their perspective, to try to answer some of their um, their questions, their curiosities, um, and also kind of use it as a learning moment um, to like talk to them about why it is that they're asking those questions. Um, and so trying to kind of help them in those moments when they are coming up with these questions. So um, I think that it was uh, uh, a really, uh, uh, it was a cool little experiment that we did and they came up with some really, really awesome questions. Um, so with that, I think maybe we can dive into that. Sounds good. And I also wanna thank you though, for being sensitive to our teens. And I, that's one of the things I love about BTO is that you're always being creative in how to solve these things and how to offer lots of ways for people to access information and services and programs. So thank you for, for thinking of this niche. Yeah. Yeah. I like to call it sneaky counseling. That's <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. I want to say that too. Yeah. I think that thank you so much for doing that and being so like Diana said, so sensitive and aware of their their needs and getting really creative and how that how those needs met. So they can we can be vulnerable and safe, but in but in a way that um, protects their privacy and and maybe even would help them be even more open because it's like well if I don't have to worry about the other teens knowing what I'm asking or fear of like being judged in the moment like I can be more transparent and I could see that reflected in the nature of some of the questions that were asked. So I'm really appreciative of that and and appreciate the courage that the teens had in asking those questions. So thank you to them too. That's really cool. Absolutely. That's a really, really great reflection and a great perspective. Um, yeah, for sure. But Nick, why don't you pick our first question that we start talking about today? Mm. Number two on our list is pretty good. Uh, why are people more subjected to depression when the seasons change? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is that we have a lot of uh, 
chemicals and things going on in our bodies that we always forget about our, our body that is kind of going along for the ride. We're all living in our heads and things like that's where everything comes from. But with the um, decreased sunlight, number of hours of light in the day, that does promote a lot of uh, changes in our bodies. But then also just on the level of mood, like some people mm -hmm. don't do so well when it's dark so much of the time, or maybe they feel like they love to be outside and it's cold and they don't have access to a lot of the things that they like to do or that make them feel better. Um, so even some of those simple things uh, become part of it. Yeah, and building on what, what Diana said, I think we have to be mindful of that interconnection between the mind and body and, and we're a whole being mental, social, uh, um, physical, spiritual. Um, and, and one of the things, especially living in the Pittsburgh area, my goodness, it's like we, um, being sunlight and getting out and moving is essential for, you know, helping release endorphins, like those feel good hormones or, or helping our, our brains be able to, our nervous systems be able to regulate. Um, so if we're limiting our exposure to that, we're more at risk for other things or maybe less like access to our coping skills or support systems or, or maybe feeling more isolated. Um, or maybe with sometimes when people struggle with like a, like sleeping too much, maybe it's more tempting to be like, well, I can just crawl into bed and escape the world mm -hmm. through sleep. Um, and then the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. um, but there are definitely some, some ways if we're mindful of that, of how we can cope with that. Um, like I even have, there's actually things called like light therapy, um, or a sad lamp, which stands for seasonal effectiveness disorder, or it's called a happy lamp. Um, I actually have one in my office. They're, they're actually pretty affordable, even online and of yeah. clients will sit in session while we're talking and they'll use it and, and then they'll turn it off and they're like, oh yeah, I think that that did help. Cause it's so, especially yesterday it was so gloomy, um, or just being, being proactive and how we can still have those needs met, mm -hmm. um, despite the external factors that are outside of our control? What are the things that I can control to help um, my mental health and my physical health and the interplay between the two? Yeah. And yeah. some people will find too even uh, that they need to take vitamin D or pay more mm. attention to foods that contain vitamin yes. D because yes. that drops and that'll help combat some of that seasonal affect. Uh, and I think an awareness of it too. So if you notice you tend to have that, it's good to start paying attention pretty early, even around yes. um, September uh, to, to yeah. be aware that maybe it's not these things in my life that are so tough. Maybe my mood is changing, making the things look even worse. Mm -hmm. So just at least self-awareness can be helpful too. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, I, I love that you guys like already kind of went into some coping skills or problem solving because that was going, we didn't have this follow-up question, but that was going to be my follow-up question of like, how do we deal with that? If that's something that's something that's coming up for us every single winter. And Joan, you're right, you know, we live in Pittsburgh and <laughs> Pittsburgh is, I think, I think it's the number one cloudiest city in the country, uh, in the United States. So when we get sun, it's very, very special, but mm -hmm. in the winter, we don't really see her very often. <laughs> mm -hmm. so I love that we already kind of went into some of those coping skills that we can use. Yeah, and that, you know, and that self-awareness mm -hmm. is really important and being proactive and taking care of ourselves as a whole person. 
-hmm. like being mindful of that again the interplay of our chemicals and vitamins and supplements like we're a complex human being with all these complex intricate systems at play and um it's very easy for us to kind of compartmentalize of like here's my social life and here's my emotional health and my spiritual health and my physical health but it's all connected together so apart from that um mm -hmm. some of the other teens definitely asked a little bit more about substance use disorders are they considered mm -hmm. mental health disorders and like we talked about before joan you mm -hmm. work in the substance abuse and you know criminal justice background i was wondering what your thoughts were on that well it's well technically um we consider substance abuse and mental health to be what we call co-occurring disorders mm -hmm. so they're separate but there's again often a lot of interplay or interconnection, um, and and even within the DSM-5, which is our manual for making diagnosis, substance use disorders are within that. Um, but even when it comes to treatment and even looking at like legislation and uh, regulations, they're separate. Like we have a separate regulations for drug and alcohol treatment and Department of Drug and Alcohol versus um, for mental health. Um, so, but there is again a lot of interplay like sometimes substance use can start or maybe stem from as an attempt uh, maladaptive or maladaptive maladaptive meaning kind of like i'm taking on healthy form of coping like maybe we um we have a lot of anxiety or racing thoughts so we lean towards substances that are uh maybe more sedating like alcohol or marijuana or or pills um that help calm the mind or maybe we want to numb out pain um, or maybe we don't have any energy, so um, we want to be able to function. So then we'll take substances that um, that can maybe give us a boost, or be able to clean, or get get schoolwork done, or something. Um, so often the the need for coping can come from a place with good intentions to try to help the to try to help us um, to feel better. So it can come from a mental health need, but there's a fine line between. Um, using and abusing substances and becoming addicted within mm -hmm. the brain and the when it, we cross that line there's really no going back um and that's when it's really considered a substance use disorder and the way it rewires the brain is a substance becomes necessary for survival so it becomes more important than food water relationships job life itself it's just mm -hmm. like we need this thing in order to survive and it keeps resetting the threshold um and I think that's something to be really mindful of as, as therapists, because we are going to see a lot of co-occurring disorders um, and knowing that like the nature of addiction is a disease um, and um, we, it has known outcome, you know, known uh, uh, origin and things if intervention does not happen. Um, so, so it's important for us as therapists to be, to be competent in both and, and aware of those things and being mindful, okay, is our client using things to cope? And or maybe are they on this other side of the fence of um, where we can intervene and, and maybe it doesn't become an addiction? Um, or they've had to kind of cross the line where it's taken over um, life and we're really seeing it take really um, reactive, maladaptive forms. Answer, uh, Diana, do you have anything? And then, yeah, yeah, I wanted to add one piece that um, yeah. we've done so much research over the last few years about mm -hmm. um, a lot of people will say there's a genetic predisposition. Yes. So meaning that when uh, 
families have a history of a lot of people having addiction in their family history, mm -hmm. then young people in that family are way at more risk of yes. developing addiction. So what they're finding is that when there's addiction, that it actually changes the DNA code. It starts yes. to change the genetic, mm -hmm. actual DNA that, in that family. So that it's really important for young people to understand if they have that in their family, they have to be way more careful even than another young person when it comes to using mm -hmm. substances because they're at much higher risk already just from the, it turning into the addiction piece. Yes, yes, thank you so much for-, for Because it can also be by example. People will say, well, mm -hmm. everyone in my family does this, so I'm gonna do this. But if that's the case, it's just, it's just gonna have a, a, an even riskier effect. Yes, yes, thank you so much for sharing that, especially with a lot of the research, especially with alcoholism, there's a very strong genetic component for that. Um, and that's another thing, like you said, with the, the, the modeling and, and what's happening within the family system or the, um, the, the caregiving system. Um, when I was working in drug and alcohol, probably the average age of starting youth, first use was between the ages of nine and 14. Mm. Um, or maybe when they were six years old, they were making a parent a drink or something like that. Like it was just very normal. Um, so then it's, we learn, this is how we cope. This is how we function. Um, and we're going to be, if, especially if we had that genetic component, we're going to, our brain and our body is going to respond to that more. We're going to like it more than the person that doesn't have the genetic predisposition. Uh, lastly, I just want to add that I, I love this sign you have up in the teen center that talks about the fact that, that children and teens brains don't stop yes. developing till age 21 so that using substances has a profound effect on them that it doesn't for older people. So thanks for having that sign right up there yes. in the teen center. I really appreciate that. And I think even too, like now we're seeing that brains don't stop developing until closer to 27 or 28. Yeah. So even later. <laughs> yeah, especially when we have so much stuck development, like when trauma and adversarial experiences happen. And yeah, chronologically we might be 35 or 18, but we might have parts of our brain that are that are stuck maybe at 10 or 12 and are younger. Yeah. And and the substance really interferes with with that brain development and cells. There's actually, um, if anyone is interested, uh, Dr. Amen, his name is A-M-E-N. He did a lot of uh, research on the impact of substances on the brain. Um, and he was the first to use what's called SPECT scanning to look at the impact of drugs on the brain. And he had some studies done that looks at um, uh, some specific drugs on the brain, like maybe like here's after, you know, 14 use of heroin or 14 use, you know, 10 years of cocaine um, or alcohol. And then some where it's looking at multiple uses. Um, so, and, and look, it's longitudinal. So it looks at people, certain brains over periods of time and periods of, of substance um, of recovery. Um, so I definitely in encourage people if they are interested to look. So again, his name is Dr. Amen. Um, the Amen Clinic inspects scans, so S-P-E-C-T-S. Um, and there is hope after recovery, you know, in periods of substance, um, abstinence, um, the brain is able to, brain is elastic. The brain is able to, to reform and, and, um, and heal. Um, so there is, there is hope for things for that pleasure center to reset and for the brain to restore itself with the damage, um, that was caused. I mean, it takes time, 
you know, probably at least a couple years. I mean, it, everyone's different, but but there is there is hope. It's not like my brain is definitely going to stay this way. But if we continue down that path, you know, things are not going to turn out well. Um, we say the known known outcomes are jail, institutions, or death hmm. um, of some form. So, but if we don't intervene and get treatment and help and support, um, we can have a really full, meaningful life. Yeah. This is is more like a question on behalf of the kids. Yeah. Um, Some kids come from a background of drinking. Their family comes from a background Mm -hmm. of drinking. I was wondering if you had any advice on how they can deal with parents that drink. Oh, um, I think it's really important to, to have people in their lives who are who are sober supports or maybe can model um, adaptive behaviors or adaptive forms of coping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if they're, you know, if maybe they're struggling with with drinking themselves, it is gonna be harder or riskier to to not do that if we're exposed. To it like like they even have a, a saying in AA of you, you know if you're in a, a barber long enough you're going to get a haircut um you know so it's like the more that you're exposed to it the more likely you are to engage in it yourself um so I think it's it's really important to surround ourselves when there's risk factors at play like those things that can really create adversary for us uh, adversity for us it's important too we have to have even more protective factors like more things to help us I kind of view it as like bubble wrap. Like we need to like wrap ourselves in bubble wrap um, mm-hmm. just to like, yeah, we're gonna probably get bumped and bruised, but maybe we won't, we won't shatter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think a, a, maybe a reflection I wanna add to this is on the level of, I like to remind people that because this sort of thing is a mental health issue, like we've acknowledged, it's important to recognize the alcohol use as separate from your parent as the person Mm -hmm. because we can feel almost like when the parent is drinking that they become sometimes a person that we don't recognize they act in a way that we can't believe or we we that is hurtful to us or or is makes us afraid and all these things but it's important to remember that aside from that that's almost like a whole separate person because the person inside who's not under the influence of alcohol is the parent who wants us cares about us loves us Mm -hmm. and then it's the alcohol that changes them much of the time so it's I think as a coping strategy that can be helpful Mm -hmm. and that when parents get treatment and are free from some of this they are often completely changed people and that being supportive of parents who are trying to make those changes or parents who are looking to go into recovery, that there is hope that yes. that, that condition and the, the person when they're un- using a substance is not the real person. Yes, yes. And that's something that, and there's so much shame and, and low self-worth that often um, people struggle with when they, when they struggle with substance abuse. And, and that's the way I would often work with, with clients of reframing um, and even how we're talking about ourselves or talking about other people. Cause we can put these labels of like, oh, well, you're an addict or you're a junkie. Um, it's like, that's who you are. Like Diana was saying, 
but if if we reframe it as you know there my my parent is a is a person who struggles with alcoholism we're able to not only separate the behavior from the person but can maybe access that compassion it's like well if they're struggling what what there's something going on there it's not that they're bad or they're whatever other negative label we want to stick to them yeah so so having compassion is a really really powerful tool for coping and and on another note too for children and teens Mm -hmm. is to remember that it's no reflection sometimes children or teens are scared like well am i not good enough why Mm -hmm. am i not enough to make my parent happy why do they need to have this other thing so it has nothing to do with it because the alcohol or the drugs have them almost in their grip so again they become a different person so it is no reflection on that importance or the beautiful person as the teen or the child that you are so it's nothing that is your fault mm-hmm. and nothing that you have caused and nothing that is any reflection. It's truly a chemical that gets people in a terrible grip. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying before about the way that it literally rewires the brain, that the substance, whatever it is, becomes more important than life itself. Mm-hmm. That is something that is outside of that person's control. <clears throat> they're not They're not choosing to be that way. Mm-hmm. And that is really important to remember that it's no one's, it's not, it's not your fault. It's no one's fault. It's just, this is something that, that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't mean there's nothing we can do about it, but because that's a common thing too, of like, well, maybe if I was a better, um, better child or I did a better job, or if I helped more around the house or, or brought in more money, maybe they would stop. Like maybe I'd be enough. But it's it's not just because the way that it rewired the brain. It's more important than anything. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> so much for sharing all, all that insight. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, you know, what's important about this podcast is hopefully that, you know, some of the teens with some of these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, their families are a little bit dysfunctional. They can come here. They don't have to, like, come directly to us. Because yeah. It's, it's nerve-wracking. It's terrifying to ask questions. Um, yeah. So I just tried to squeeze, like, three years, three or four years of yeah. experience in a you know, couple <laughs> minutes. Eight minutes, minutes. yes. Yeah. No, yeah. We're trying to rest. Kira, do you want to pick a question? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think just because we're kind of still going in this direction, right, of talking about mental health and really heavy mental health, right, I think mm-hmm. um, something we've been seeing with our teams in this space and even just like, you know, locally like outside Mm -hmm. of the teen space like nationally even is just like this increase in self-harm um and increase in suicide rates for teens right and so one of our kids asked uh why do people hurt or kill themselves which is a really, really big question to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that it's ever going to have like a very specific direct answer, but I think that it's worth us having a conversation about, you know, how people get to this space, you know, this this very low mental space and maybe just like some coping skills of how we can get help. How do we get out of here? How do we ask for help? What does that process look like? Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things. 
Big question. Big question. <laughs> it is so yeah, big. It is big. But I, I'm thinking, I guess, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I mean, generally, it's when people are so overwhelmed and in so much either fear or level of pain that they just don't know what to do or feel mm -hmm. like they just have no options, can't think of solutions, can't bear sometimes the emotional pain anymore. That that's why they start thinking along those lines of harming mm -hmm. themselves. And uh, it's sometimes, usually it's, people are certainly not in a frame of mind at that time that they're even making sense. They often can't even hardly speak or form sentences because they're so distraught. So they're not really using their functioning part of their brain that makes logical decisions. They're coming from a really emotional space and often just wanting to escape the emotional pain. So I think that what is so important always is at, at the very earliest time in any of our situations where we're having sadness or depression or anxiety, that we're reaching out and connecting with others, getting help, getting support, because that's what's going to make a difference and keep us from feeling desperate, is having already a, a network, things that matter to us, things that are important, people that care about us. Again, another reason why the Teen Center is so crucial because mm -hmm. it's a safe place that people who genuinely care are there. It doesn't matter what we will, you know, be there for people and uh, therapists, counselors, all of us. When when we have clients and they're in a state of distress and reach out, we are there. Uh, so so that's what makes the difference. But mm -hmm. to me, the essence of is is a, is a hopelessness and and desire for escape from emotional pain. Yes, yes. All all behavior no matter how intense or extreme it may seem, has a function. And it has, I come from a, a frame of mind that it, it has good intentions to help us in some way. Like it has intentions to help us, like Dana was saying, to, to escape from pain or um, just to make things end because we just can't take it anymore. Or maybe we just feel so alone and hopeless and there's that we feel trapped and there's nothing we can do. So it has an intention to create a way out. Um, it's just the form that it's taking on is just in such like an extreme space that it is really desperate. Um, so the the key is in hopeless in, in the the opposite of, of despair mm -hmm. and hopelessness is is hope and connection. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to get to a place where we can take a step back and and recognize that maybe if it's communicating we need to escape from the pain okay what are some other ways that we can do that or be able to manage the pain or to cope with the pain without needing to end life or maybe to to hurt ourselves, um, to distract, or sometimes even with, with, um, with self-harm, sometimes the, the physical pain is a, a way to distract from the emotional pain. Or some people report, you know, experiencing a sense of relief or it feels good, um, you know, because it's a way that emotional pain needs out. So it's like, okay, so if this behavior is crying out for, for attention, how can we listen to it in a kind, compassionate way? without judging. So um, I'm glad you touched on that because I feel that so many adults 
um, have trouble understanding why kids um, self-harm or cut. Mm -hmm. I think that they believe that it's more just like, you know, for attention or for, you know, like you're trying to get something like there's like almost evil motives. Yeah. Why you're doing it, you know, you're manipulating other people. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're not going to share. We're not going to tell people or ask for help if we're going to be shamed or judged. Yeah. It's like you are becoming a problem or something. Mm -hmm. And Joan, with your touching on hope, I I like the um, program that was started or the approach with the butterfly for cutting because Mm -hmm. uh, when people cut and there's uh, often a certain part of their body, they tend to do that. Uh, you can draw a butterfly, you can take like a, a marker and, and draw a beautiful butterfly on that spot to remind yourself that there is hope, there is a new life ahead of you, there's choices that will make life better. And that instead of choosing that option, the butterfly is there to remind you not, mm. not to hurt oneself. And, you know, I think hope is a lot to do with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also grounding, I think it's important to remember that when people are in that high emotional state, they're often so in their head that they're detached from their body. So uh, grounding activities is what therapists call it, but it's cutting in essence is a severe method of kind of uh, Mm -hmm. getting back in your body, but less severe ones if you're escalating are things like um, taking a shower, tapping that's something Joan talks about uh, with EMDR that she does you know and some people will have um, a bowl with ice water and you put your hands in the ice water to almost like shock yourself to like pay attention to your body go for a walk listen to music dance those things that are very body centered will Mm -hmm. keep people out of that high emotion that was good yeah thank you for sharing yeah touching on that Diana We, we hit all the points we did all the things Um, thank you yeah and if we're able the way that our nervous system is is designed is that kind of building on what Dana was saying if we're if we're moving and we're kind of getting out of this space of what we call hypoarousal when our body is essentially shutting down and preparing for death and it's like there's no hope um one of the best ways to get out of that is through movement and connecting Mm -hmm. with our body and then we can go through what's called hyperarousal which is that that fight or flight but then we're able to feel things um, so then it's like, okay, I need to be able to, to ground and cope with those feelings. And then from there, we can get to what's called the window of tolerance, which means I can regulate, I can be okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe things are still crappy, but I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I'm capable. I have people who love me. I can, you know, take mm-hmm. a step back. So the more we do to cope, the more we will be able to access that, that space where we can feel okay. And that these parts that are, you know, that the behavior that's screaming, help me, help me, help me, we need release, we can listen to it and maybe be like, okay, I hear you. So let's do, let's find something else that we can do to have this need met that's not so intense. I appreciate you both sharing all of those coping skills. Um, And they're, all of these are definitely things that we'll be adding into our show notes or just in different Mm -hmm. spaces for people to be able to uh, have access to and to see what some of these look like so that they can start practicing them themselves that they're listening and they're in this kind of space or they know somebody who's in this kind of space. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. I feel like we should probably try and do, you know, a bit of a lighting round at this point. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
get through some of the other teens questions because i think there's a lot more uh really good ones on here and uh, one that's jumping out to me is <laughs> why do people decide to be mean or to bully other people this is a little bit more teen center school focused mm. i think um i'm wondering what your thoughts are maybe like a minute or two for both of you <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll say a real a real quick one i've certainly heard from teens that they've been bullied themselves either by other kids or certainly maybe at home they're being bullied uh and that it's an expression of anger it's getting rid of some of that uh, almost like i'm hurting so i want other people to hurt too but more important, I think sometimes it's power. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't have power in these other places in my life where I'm tired of being a bullied. So I'm going to bully other people. And then no one's ever going to bully me again. Is Those are some of the themes I hear. Yeah. I also always say like, hurt people hurt people. Yes. You know? so, mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with that sentiment. Yeah. I I, I would say exactly that as well. And like I said earlier, all behaviors have a function, even if they are a purpose, even if it seems like a really maladaptive or unhealthy or negative space. But there's an, and the intention is to protect. And maybe that is protecting. I, I feel out of control. I'm being hurt. I, I need to protect myself from being hurt. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so really just kind of reiterating what Diana was saying. What are some ways that the kids can deal with boys? I think having your own good friends is one thing that is helpful. Mm -hmm. When uh, we're, people are, I think, targeted by bullies sometimes if they are isolated. So having good friends of your own, so you have support. Uh, I know a lot of the schools have bullying programs and do their best to not tolerate bullies. So though it is very, very difficult sometimes as a child or a teen to tell adults, I think that piece is still really important. I think people get scared, like, well, if I tell the adult, will I get in more trouble? I think you still have to try because the schools really are doing their best to provide safe environments and to tell a loving adult that that's happening. Because a lot of times adults actually can do things, even if you think they can't. Mm. So those are two reflections I would give. Yeah, do you have any ideas? Well, I think um, going going back to compassion and having compassion towards ourselves and others, and part of that is knowing we're not alone, because um, it can when we're bullied, that can feel very isolated or like what's wrong with me, mm. um, and and being able to like Dinah was saying, um, how the supports that we need and those boundaries in place that we need. We can have compassion towards people and have an understanding that maybe it's coming from a place of pain or hurt, but it doesn't mean we have to subject ourselves to abuse or being hurt. Um, it can just maybe help us with how we're how we're perceiving perceiving it, and also being kind to ourselves that we're not there's nothing that we're doing to deserve that. Mm -hmm. I think something we do really well at the teen center is um, trying to build a positive sense of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. and a positive sense of identity for mm -hmm. our kids um, so that when they do experience that that bullying behavior from others right while it might be hurtful and it might be hard to like deal with it in the moment they can find a trusted adult take a step back and be reminded that like 
no, I, I like who I am as a person. I like the way that I dress. I like the way that I do my makeup. I like the way that I like my, the way that I draw, you know, whatever it is, but just reminding them that they are their own person and their, their own mm -hmm. identity and it's okay. Yeah, thanks for adding that because my, my thought too was that self-confidence, if we can grab onto that and grow that self-confidence in ourselves, that's our best defense often against a bully because mm -hmm. then we're not afraid to stand up to them. We become more fearless. We become more willing to speak up for ourselves and stand up for ourselves. So yeah. I think that that is the other thing I wanted to mention too. So yeah. thanks mm -hmm. for that up here. Yeah, not everybody's words are our truths. I think also on the topic of self-esteem, um, another teen asked, is there such a thing as a perfect body? The perfect body is the one you have. Yeah, <laughs> I, I say They're all wonderful, perfect bodies. There is absolutely no perfect body because whatever you have is great. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and our bodies work so hard. I think if we really understood, again, the complexity of of the inner workings of our body and each body part and having appreciation towards it like like maybe a perfect body is you know really really the intention is to have a healthy body and yeah. and and be able to to use our bodies in a meaningful purposeful way yeah i feel like the the idea of a perfect body is very relative and it's also mm -hmm. very based on societal and cultural standards um, which are generally unhealthy already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I like how, how you said the perfect body is the one that you have, Diana, because <laughs> it is, uh, you know, if you're striving towards health, if you're striving towards a body that makes you feel good, that you can feel confident, that you can lift the things that you need to lift and your legs take you to the places that you need to go. And, you know, your brain gets you through the day and helps you complete your tasks. That's, that's the thing that's the most important and mm -hmm. it's beautiful and perfect the way that it is. Yeah. And the, the only other thing I want to add to that is I like to look at history and culture and, and every culture over all of different history, a whole different body type was quote, desired. And I say to myself, if something is that subject to change, then what, there's no worth to any of the opinions because it just doesn't, it's just ridiculous. If, if the ideal body is so subject to opinion, like, and, and changes, then what the heck? I say, just forget about it all and just be happy. <laughs> I feel like you're making more comments on, you know, the ideas of fads and trends like yeah like social media and tiktok and things like that it's very much a thing that our teens pay a lot of attention to mm -hmm. and um you know the perfect body is whatever kim kardashian is doing or you know anything like that you know the powerful celebrities of the world uh mm -hmm. teach our kids a lot of things and i think adults you know trusted adults need to be mindful of that um, everybody was there once or twice. So, mm -hmm. you know, be caring and compassionate and realizing that, you know, <laughs> children's emotions are at the most intense right now, like high mm -hmm. intensity, like puberty and things like that. Um, so little tiny things that are nothing to us are big for them. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I always explain it, it 
in the way of like I kind of conceptualize emotions where born with like all of these emotions in our body but our body is so tiny and Mm -hmm. so our reactions to those emotions are going to be a lot bigger because it doesn't have as much space in our body but as we grow Mm -hmm. and get older and as our bodies expand there's more space for that emotion to live in and so we can learn how to regulate the ways that those things are coming up for us and it's still hard to have emotions as adults mm-hmm. and so you know teenagers are still really trying to figure out the world and their bodies are changing so much so quickly all the time the world is changing around them so quickly all the time and they're they feel like there's like this really high expectation for them all the time mm-hmm. so uh that kind of like you were saying earlier, Joan, compassion mm-hmm. and just understanding that they're, they're doing a lot Yep, all of the time, even if it doesn't look like it from an adult's perspective, mm-hmm. so having that compassion for them is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I, I think this is like a collective of like, you, this is you, Diana and Kate and Joan, and like this is very much, uh, I think, a teen center thing. It's like mm-hmm. just trying things on. They're, they're trying things on, and they're trying. Things on. <laughs> true, true. It's a time of experimenting, so learning about the world. Yeah, yeah exciting. Out, you know, and I think that um, they're trying their best. And I think that's mm-hmm. always, you know. yeah, yeah, and having compassion towards that process. And they've never yeah. done these things before. Yeah. Adults forget, like, this is so new. Like, right. they haven't done almost everything they have to do every day. They haven't done before. <laughs> I think that's a really good perspective because even as, like, a 26-year-old, I am probably still doing things that I've never done before, mm-hmm. like, every day. Like, that was a really good reminder for me even of being like, why, why do I suck at this? And it's like, well, you've never done it. Like chill out <laughs> you know yeah. you're gonna be okay mm-hmm. so I think that's a really good reminder for them and I think it's a good reminder for us too yeah we're always learning all of the time every day no yeah. matter what age or how much we've experienced we're always learning I think that about does it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much yeah thank you I, I am so grateful and it was so nice to to know that we can connect in this way with the whole community and our teens and thank you to everybody who put these questions together and very exciting thanks yeah, yeah. thank you both so much for for coming on and for answering some of these really really hard questions you know we we certainly didn't get to all of them because we had a, mm-hmm. a lot of really great questions that our kids were asking but i think we were able to have some really great conversations and to get some great mm-hmm. insight from the both of you um, and have this this conversation to pass on to anybody who might need it. So thank yeah, you. thank you so much. Thank you guys for doing this and for having us and for all the work that you do mm-hmm. day in and day out in the trenches at BTO. And, um, and I really hope that our listeners are able to, to take something away from Before you go, episodes of Lunchtime Chats with BTO are free on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you want to hear episodes ad-free, get extra content, and have opportunities for mini consultation services, you can always subscribe to our Patreon account 
Brookline Teen Outreach linked in the show notes. Another way you can support our show is to make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. It's so helpful for our growth at BTO if you give us a review and rate our podcast. You can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Brookline Teen Outreach, Instagram at handle Brookline Teen Outreach, Twitter at handle Brookline underscore teen, our LinkedIn account at Brookline Teen Outreach Center, and again, our Patreon account at Brookline Teen Outreach. You can always find more resources and information on our website, brooklineteenoutreach.org. You can find counseling resources on our sister organization, Compassionate Counseling's website, compassionatecounselingpa.org. Thanks so much for listening.